Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plyme and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing, nothing about our legal system. But we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Yay. Yay. That was a double <laughs> eye roll. Was it? <laughs> it was. I try so hard, but I feel like I'm just contorting my face into horrible places. <laughs> I like the Diana face. Uh, well, there are so many of them. I think we added a new one last week. I, I think that might be true. <laughs> so Diana, how's it going? It is going. You busy enough? I think so, yes. How about yeah. you? Yeah, I think I'm busy enough, too. Oh, but you know what? <laughs> what? You know what we're going to do this weekend? What? We're going to go to a house in the middle of nowhere. I'm not yeah. actually sure where. I should look into that. Yeah. With our girlfriends. Uh-huh. And we're going to become very inebriated, I'm guessing. That's okay. That sounds good. And then the next day, we're going to go see the house on the rock, which I hear is all sorts of fucked up. Awesome. And then I think more inebriation. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a deck or something. There's some water? Yeah. Like maybe a lake. I might remember my swimsuit, which I forget every time. Oh, I didn't even think about that. I should find my swimsuit. I have so many because I've had to buy them at my destination. <laughs> so many times. That's funny. Well, I am looking forward to that break. But you know what else Me I'm looking too. forward to? Me telling you that Crime Crazy is sponsored by? Yes. <laughs> Yay. Seb Bryce. Thank you. Courtney Ellis. Thank you. And Dave Hat. Thank you. Crime Crazy sponsors support us through Patreon at the $10 per month level or above. And they're awesome. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. Uh, awesome. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you would like to be awesome like them, you should check out patreon.com slash crimecrazypod. If you don't like Patreon, that's cool. We also have Buy Me a Coffee. Yes. Did I say it right? I feel you like did. I you said it with a question mark at the end, but that is in fact what it is called. It is. And if you want to fact check me, go check out our website at crimecrazy.com because <laughs> Aaron put cute little buttons there. We did. We did in all of our little episode art. Yes. Yeah. Um, did we do the shout out for the one that I lost last week? I believe that we did. Okay. Well, if not, hey, Pravina, we love you. Yay! If you'd like to receive a shout out, you can rate and review us on, I don't know what the damn podcast platforms are. I'm not going to lie. I have a bunch of them on my phone. Apparently, iTunes is dead. Oh, cool. So yeah, so find one of those, leave a review, maybe let us know about it so we know where it is. That's right. Um, also, we're still giving out stickers. So if you would like to email us at Erin, E-R-Y-N, at CrimeCrazy.com or Diana at CrimeCrazy.com, we will send you stickers. I will even go to the post office for you. That's an amazing offer, guys. You should take her up on it immediately. You should see the pile of returns I have because I do not want to go to the post office. <laughs> You can also follow Crime Crazy on all the social medias at Crime Crazy Pod. Yay! Aaron. Yes. Did you learn something this week? Oh, did I? Ooh. And it is fucked up, Diana. <laughs> yes. That's kind of what I needed. <laughs> 
So the way that I learned this is I said to my darling husband, what should I learn about this week? Actually, I said it to Tobin too, but his answers were mostly like Minecraft and whether or not you can beat me in Mario Kart and stuff like that, <laughs> which is can clever. Can you beat him in Mario Kart? I can beat him in the races. I cannot usually beat him in the battles. <laughs> that little sucker is evil. <laughs> he has been taught well. Yes, it is true. So um, what David found for me is something called Radathor. Are you going to kill me with that? Well, I could. Holy shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't because I don't have any. But if we were living in the early 1920s, I would potentially have access to Radathor, which was a medicine slash energy drink that was basically triple distilled water and radium. That will certainly do the job, won't it? it, (laughs) Eventually. It did. It did some jobs, yes. (laughs) So um, it was manufactured from uh, the just before 1920 until like through most of the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And it was marketed as basically a a cure-all. It could cure impotence. It could cure injury. It could like make you buff. It could um, just any, anything that might be wrong with you or anything that you wanted to change, you just drink Radithor. So if we could get our hands on some of that. Yeah. I've got a sinus infection. It would definitely cure your sinus infection infection um, until. Well, I was going to say, I also have a fat ass, but I feel like the radiation would also take care of that at some point. I, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to tell you about one person who took Radithor, oh, no. whose name was Ebenezer Byers, who went by, I guess, Eben? better yeah so Eben um was like a an athlete he was an amateur golf champion he was very preppy um and was was relatively successful until in 1927 he fell and he injured his arm and I don't know what kind of injury this was but apparently it was painful Mm -hmm. And so for his pain, his doctor prescribed him Radithor. And Radithor was this, by this point, it was a relatively established product because this was 1927, which was like the almost the end of of Radithor. In fact, buyers had a lot to do with the end of Radithor. But um, basically, it was created by this guy who had been a medical student and then dropped out, but just told everybody he graduated, which was a lot easier to do in like the 1910s. Um, and so he told everybody that he was a doctor and he created this stuff. Um, and he said that it would stimulate your endocrine system. Um, but the real trick was that whenever a doctor prescribed it, he would pay them. Right. So they'd get kickbacks. So they prescribed it more often. So Byers was in pain. His doctor. Right. Mm. His doctor prescribed Radithor. 
um, he took several, he took it several times a day. And at first it made him feel a whole lot better. So he said it gave him a toned up feeling um, until after like three years of taking it when he had to stop because he had lost so much weight. He had headaches. His teeth just rotted right out of his head. Um, in 1931, the Federal Trade Commission was like, hey, can you come tell us about your experience? Like, we've pulled this drug from the market because people are getting sick. And he was so sick he couldn't travel. Um, and um, so all of his, oh, God, this is so nasty. All <laughs> of his upper jaw, except for the very front part with his two front teeth and most of his lower jaw all had to be removed because it was just disintegrating and he was getting holes in his skull and he was sort of rotting from the inside out he died in 1932 so five years after hurting his arm god it took that long yes oh um they attributed the death to radiation poisoning um but it was actually due to like a million cancers that he got from the radiation. Yeah. They buried him in a lead-lined coffin because he was seriously radioactive after uh-huh. death. But when they exhumed him in 1965 to do some additional studies, he was still highly radioactive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Marie Curie's notes are still locked up. Oh, yeah. Because they're so radioactive. And I got to thinking about that, I don't know why, a while ago, because I'd heard that, like, they're very protected, like, you can't go in and, and, like, read her notes and stuff. (coughs) And I was rehearing this somewhere, and I remembered that I have visited Marie Curie's grave. She's at the Parthenon in Paris. Mm. And I got to thinking, like, well, that seems like a bad idea there. But yeah. her coffin is lead-lined. Gotcha. Because gotcha. she is probably still radioactive. Yeah. So as sick as all of this is, I have to end on kind of a funny note, <laughs> which is the Wall Street Journal article in 1990, where they talked about um, Thor and the buyer's incident. And the title of the article was, The Radium Water Worked Fine Until His Jaw Came Off. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That is a symbol that things are not going well. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So that's what I learned this week. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Liam and I have been listening to Sawbones. So we listened to, we're still like really early in the series. And we listened to the one about radium. And it's just, like, just because something does something doesn't mean it's good for you guys. Yes. That's like pre-story advice. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah. oh my God, all the things we thought were wonder drugs that just fucking killed us all. Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of a balance, right? Even today, most drugs will kill you. It's just taking the right dosage to kill whatever it is you're trying to kill before it kills you. Right. And then stopping in time. Yeah. When Jeff was first diagnosed, he had to have a PET scan, mm-hmm. um, and he was lightly radioactive for about a day. So it wasn't bad enough that, like, some treatments, they 
advise you to like check in a hotel or they keep you in the hospital or like try to limit your exposure. And it oh, wasn't yeah. that necessary for that. He wasn't that radioactive, but we couldn't hug him for a day. Oh. <laughs> it was the worst. <laughs> How bizarre. It was so bizarre. Cause he's like, you know, running around feeling fine. Everything's great. But like, I can't kiss him. I can't hug him. I wasn't sure I should sleep next to him. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> Just lightly radioactive. Lightly radioactive. Just slightly. <laughs> just a bit. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, uh, one of his chemos was platinum-based, so he used to tell him he just glittered inside. Yeah. <laughs> he was expensive on the inside. He was so expensive on the inside. <laughs> I mean, he was expensive anyway, but no. <sighs> so, um, Diana, do you have a story that can top my radioactive energy drink? I don't think so, but it's kind of the same timeline. Ooh, I'm ready. We're, we're going retro. I like it. So however long ago it was on Crime Crazy <laughs> that we <laughs> recorded, and it was my turn, I talked about the now disappointing H.H. H. Holmes while we were in Chicago for the True Crime Podcast Festival. Which and was I awesome, despite the fact that you ruined my favorite serial killer. Uh, I know. I'm still really upset about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I wasn't ready to leave Chicago the city, and I'm not ready to leave Chicago as a source of stories. So today, I'm going to talk about one of the most famous murders in Chicago, the murder of John Dillinger. Ooh. John Herbert Dillinger was born on June 22nd, 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana, to John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster, and was the second of their two children. His sister, Audrey, was 14 years older than he was. Oh, wow. John Wilson Dillinger was a grocer that John Herbert later described as firm in his discipline. Okay. John Herbert's mother died when he was four. And at the time, widowed fathers who apparently couldn't do anything for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. W- would generally... <laughs> would generally make uh, arrangements for the kids. So the arrangement that John Wilson made was to marry off Audrey and send John Herbert to go live with her and the new hubby. Okay. Um, She and the new hubby would eventually have seven children together, but at the beginning of their marriage, Audrey was taking care of her little brother. And in 1912, a few years after uh, John Herbert's mother died, John Wilson married Elizabeth Lizzie Fields, and they had three more children together. John Herbert was not a fan of his stepmother at first, but he eventually came around and he and Lizzie had a three year long sexual relationship. Oh my. About which not nearly enough has been written. I mean, that seems like plenty. Like that's literally all there is. Like, how did this happen? Mm. Did his dad know? What the fuck? Right. <laughs> yeah. So John Herbert was noted for getting in trouble with the law on the regular as a teenager and known for his, and I quote, bewildering personality. Oh, just great. (laughs) (laughs) He quit school to go work in a machine shop in Indianapolis, but his father thought that the big city was corrupting his son. So he moved the whole family to Mooresville, Indiana in 1921. Hmm. I'm guessing that was not what was corrupting him. Are you reading my notes? <laughs> he was already on his way because it turns out that the big city was not the root of his criminal activity. <laughs> and the next year he was arrested for auto theft. 
His troubles with the law and his father, who wasn't exactly thrilled about this latest development, led him to enlist in the Navy, where he was a petty officer third class. But he deserted ship a few months later in Boston and was eventually dishonorably discharged. Because we couldn't see that one coming. He moved back to Morrisville and married Beryl Ethel Hovius. Oh, my God. That poor uh, woman. In 1924, he tried to go on the straight and narrow for a while, but he was really bad at holding down a job and being a married man. Hmm. So he and his buddy, Ed Singleton, started planning the robbery of a local grocery store. Perfect. They got away with $50, and during the commission of the crime, John smacked someone on the head with a machine bolt wrapped in a cloth and a gun. Oh, my God. That's not the sentence I meant. He smacked somebody in the head with a machine bolt wrapped in cloth, and he had a gun. The gun discharged, but it didn't hit anybody. Okay. Well, that's still great. Dillinger and Singleton were arrested the next day, having been recognized by a minister who alerted the police. Oh, so they're good at this. Singleton pleaded not guilty. John Wilson had a chat with the county prosecutor and somehow convinced John Herbert to confess, plead guilty, and definitely not to talk to a defense attorney. Well, that is great advice. Mm. Mm-hmm. John Herbert was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. Mm-hmm. He expected a lenient sentence since Daddy had talked to the prosecutor. Yeah. But he was sentenced to 10 to 20 in prison. Well, that worked out well. His father was appalled. <laughs> and later told reporters that he regretted the advice that he'd given his son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He pleaded with the judge to reduce the sentence, but that didn't work. So John Herbert was on the way to prison. But first, he had to make a stop in Morrisville and testify against Singleton, during which he made a quick escape. Oh. But he was recaught in a few minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> a few minutes. Not a few days or a few weeks. He's not, not a Ted Bundy. No, no, no. A few minutes. A few minutes. Singleton was sentenced to 2 to 14 years and he only outlived Dillinger by 3 years. He was killed by a train after he passed out drunk on the tracks in 1937. Oh my god. <laughs> so I initially thought when I was reading up on this that John Wilson had gone to the defense attorney to like tell him to throw the book at his kid. Mm-hmm. You know, as robberies go, it wasn't that big of a deal. Nobody was hurt. It was 50 bucks, which in the 30s or 20s, I guess, at this point, it was a much bigger deal than it is now. But right. still, like, right. it was fine. So when I first read late, he went and talked to the prosecutor. I assumed he's going to be like, hey, you know what? My kid's going down a bad yeah. path. Why don't you go ahead and set him on the straight and narrow? Right. That makes but sense. But throughout all of this, and we'll get to it a little bit more, he was working to get his kid out. Like he appealed to the mm. judge after John was sentenced and was like, that is way too much mm. for this crime. Will you reduce it? And the judge said, no, he went out later and got signatures for a petition to get his kid out of jail. Oh, wow. Like he knew he fucked up. Right. And it wasn't at all to throw the book at his kid. It was like to work something out. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, you would want it to be temporary, like, hey, we want to turn my kid's life around, not permanently throw him in prison for the rest of his life. Right. Not. Yeah. Not. so. You, right. Temporary, not permanent. No, that's I, that was kind of the impression I got is that it was, you know, he's going down a bad path. Help me stop that. Right. Right. Yeah. 
not didn't work. No, 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 no. So as we all know, prison's just a training ground for criminals, and studying crime seems to be what Dillinger decided to do with his time inside. Well, what a great use of time. What else you can do? Yeah, true. When he was admitted to the Indiana Reformatory, he was quoted as saying, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. Well, that's great. Some good reform happening there. He befriended lots of other criminals, specializing in bank robbery. Great. His new friend, Homer Van Meter, taught Dillinger how to be a successful criminal. And he and his buddies planned all the crimes they'd get up to after they were released. A great use of time. Dillinger also studied Herman Lamb's meticulous bank robbing system and used it extensively after he was released from prison. <laughs> Lamb's system was inspired by the military hmm. and tactics included the use of roles during the robbery, like lookout, getaway driver, lobby man, vault man. Nice. They also used modern weapons like the Thompson submarine. Great. Submachine gun, not submarine. Submarine gun. Submarine gun. And bulletproof vests. Mm. And he also made gits, which were detailed getaway maps to improve their chances of escaping after the robbery. Great. Powerful cars like the V8 Ford mm -hmm. Coupes, which, by the way, was the favorite car of Clyde Barrow, mm. were used for the robbery because they were high powered. They could go faster than most other cars, but then they'd be discarded later to get the cops off to the trail. Right. And they would also keep... Um, caches of gasoline and medical kits in case any of them were injured during the robberies. That These are is... like Boy Scout bank robbers. Yeah, they are insanely well organized. They have, like, did they build a model? Is there a spreadsheet involved? <laughs> right. <laughs> in 1933, after nine and a half years in prison, and maybe due to the 188 signatures on the petition that his father circulated, John Dillinger was released from prison. You may recall that 1933 was the height of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And faced with no prospects, Dillinger immediately went back to crime. I mean, that was his plan. He studied. Right. So on June 21st, one month and 11 days after getting out of prison... Oh, wow. He robbed the New Carlisle National Bank in New Carlisle, Ohio, getting $10,000. Hmm. In July, he knocked over the commercial bank in Daleville, Indiana. That got $3,500. Okay. In August, Bluffton Bank of Bluffton, Ohio was relieved of $6,000. Relieved. Okay. And later in August, he hit Massachusetts Avenue State Bank in Indianapolis getting $21,000. He's doing great. Uh, so Dayton police were on his tail. He was captured by them and taken to jail in Lima, which because I have lived in Ohio, I know it's pronounced Lima and not Lima like it's fucking spelled. <laughs> well, you know, like Lima beans. Lima, it's pretty near Versailles and Berlin. Yeah. Living in Ohio is very frustrating for me. <laughs> when they were searching for him... Searching him on his way into jail, they found what looked like to be a prison escape plan, but Dillinger wouldn't tell them what it really was. Well, duh. It was 100% <laughs> an escape plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> While he was in the Indiana Reformatory, he helped plot the escape of eight guys he'd met in prison, most of whom worked in the laundry. Great. Dillinger arranged for guns to be smuggled into their cells, and they used those guns to escape four days after Dillinger was captured in Ohio. Four days. This group was known as the first Dillinger gang, and as soon as they got out, three of them hauled ass to Lima. All right. 
DeFore arrived in Lima on October 12th and impersonated Indiana State Police officers, saying mm. that they were there to extradite Dillinger back to Indiana. Nice. When he asked for their credentials, Harry Pete Pierpont shot the sheriff dead, released Dillinger, and went back to Indiana. Well, there you go. The gang went on the lam, hitting former banks to the tune of $114,822. Holy shit. Between October of 1933 and January of 1934, going as far west as Racine, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Besides robbing the banks, the gang would also rob state police arsenals to stock oh. up on machine guns, rifles, revolvers, ammo, and bulletproof vests. Oh, yeah. I got to have the weapons. On December 14th, 1933, Chicago Police Department Detective William Shanley was killed. Mm. The police suspected that the robbery of the Unity Trust and Savings Bank was the work of the Dillinger gang. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, but Detective Shanley was following up on a tip that led him to Dillinger gang member John Red Hamilton at a local garage. When Shanley approached Hamilton, Hamilton shot him. Just for being there. Just because he was a cop and he was there and... Yeah. Yeah, he knew he was a cop. Right. That... Mm -hmm. Great. This murder led to the Chicago PD putting together a 40-man Dillinger squad. Nice. The gang, along with Dillinger's girlfriend, Evelyn, Billy, Frechette, took a little winter vacation to Florida after that. Mm -hmm. Nice. Dillinger went back to Chicago in January and some of the other... some of the other guys drove out to Tucson. On January 15th, Dillinger and Hamilton robbed the first national bank in East Chicago. Mm. During this robbery, Dillinger committed his first and only murder of Chicago patrolman William Patrick O'Malley. Uh. O'Malley shot Dillinger four times, but the bullets were stopped by his bulletproof vest. Right, because, yeah. In return, Dillinger fired his Tommy gun, leaving a perfect row of eight bullets across O'Malley's chest. Oh, my God. That, okay. The police were closing in, so Dillinger and Hamilton decided it was time to visit the rest of the boys in Tucson. Uh But on January 21st, the hotel in Tucson, where they were all staying, caught fire. And the gang was forced to flee without their luggage. Uh. Two of the gang members gave several firemen $12 each to let them go back in and get their luggage, (laughs) which they did. But this also allowed the firefighters to get a really good look at several members of the gang. Oh, This uh ended up being a problem. And the arrests of the gang members started coming. Yeah. Charles Mackley, also known as Fat Charles, was traced through his luggage. Mm -hmm. When the police arrived at the address on January 25th, they found Russell Clark, and he was arrested after a struggle. Mackley was followed to an electric and radio store and arrested while he was looking at radios capable of picking up police calls. I mean, that is necessary. Henry Pete Pierpont was picked up along with his girlfriend Mary Kinder at a stage routine traffic stop. Mm-hmm. Dillinger was taken last when he arrived back at the house where Clark was captured. Between all the captured, they found over $25,000 in cash and numerous weapons. The men were extradited back to the Midwest, and Pierpont, Mackley, and Clark were sent to Ohio to be tried for Sheriff Sarber's murder. Mm-hmm. All three men were convicted. Pierpont and Mackley received the death penalty, and Clark got a life sentence. On September 22nd, 1934, Mackley was killed by guards as he and Pierpont tried to escape. 
Pierpont was wounded but survived and was executed on October 17th. Clark was released from prison in 1968 and died of cancer a few months later. Was he released on like compassionate release because he was no he was he was sentenced to life that was 34 years and it just coincided with him being sick and dying Uh, yeah i think so okay convenient dillinger was extradited to lake county jail in crown point indiana to stand trial for the murder of officer o'malley he arrived back at midway airport on january 30th it didn't count, so they arrested him in Tucson. It took them five days to get him back to Chicago. Oh. And it was like six different flights because airplanes couldn't fly for that long anymore <laughs> yet. Oh. Huh. I forgot to count, but it was like one of the articles I read gave all of the different legs, and it was ridiculous. How how funny. So back at Midway Airport on January 30th and waiting for him there were 32 heavily armed Chicago policemen and a 13 car mm-hmm. caravan with 29 troopers from Indiana to escort him to Crown Point, which is 30 miles away from Chicago. I mean, overkill, but I get it. The police thought they had him this time. Yeah. Local police told the local newspapers that the jail in Crown Point was escape proof. Yeah. Okay. So Dillinger was there for a little over a month before he made it out. (laughs) Of course. No one's really sure how it happened. According Mm -hmm. to the local deputy, Dillinger had a real gun. According to the FBI, he carved a fake one. We'll never know. Interesting. On the lam again, Dillinger was indicted by a local grand jury, and the Bureau Mm -hmm. of Investigation organized a nationwide manhunt for him. Mm-hmm. But he was on the move. He reunited with his girlfriend in Chicago and then came up to the Twin Cities. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Staying in an apartment <laughs> in South Minneapolis for a couple of weeks and joining up with Hamilton. The two of them formed a super mobster gang with Babyface Baby Nelson's crew and went back to robbing banks. Oh, okay. Three days after escaping Crown Point, the gang robbed the Securities National Bank and Trust Company in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That got them $49,500. Wow. And the first national bank in Mason City, Iowa for $52,000. They didn't waste time. Following the Mason City robbery, the gang made it back to St. Paul, saw the doctor because one of the guys was hurt, Uh and then went to Little Bohemia Lodge in Manitowash Waters, Wisconsin. Wow, busy. The gang had assured the owners that they'd give them no trouble, Mm -hmm. but the owners got suspicious. They Mm -hmm. tipped off the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. And Mm -hmm. a few days later, the lodge was surrounded in the early morning hours, but the officers gave themselves away when they mistakenly shot a local resident and two civilian conservation corps workers. Oh, my God. They just shot people. It's like a fucking kindergarten cop movie. Right. (laughs) There was gunfire between the two groups, but the whole gang managed to escape. Mm -hmm. The gang made their way back to St. Paul, where police caught up with them. So one of the articles I read said that they were coming from, I forget where it said, but it was indicated to the police that they were coming back towards St. Paul over the high bridge. And if it's the one I'm thinking of, because it's called the high bridge between um, a little part of St. Paul that's across the river from the rest of St. Paul, I used to live right off the high bridge. Oh, yikes. When I lived uh, up in Cherokee there. You could have been in a whole lot of danger, Diana. Well, I could have been. I mean, there was that shootout in front of my apartment building. No, no, no. I mean, you're old enough to have been around during this danger. Well, either way. Yeah. 
Uh, the gang made their way back to Chicago. Police caught up with them. There was a 20-mile car chase. Ooh. Hamilton was shot during the chase and later died of his injuries at the Barker Carpus hideout in Aurora, Illinois. Oh. One week after Hamilton's death, the gang robbed the First National Bank of Fostoria, Ohio, which got them $17,000. And then the Merchants National Bank of South Bend, Indiana, which got them $29,890 on June 30th. They were back by July. The feds didn't have any idea where Dillinger was. Great. He was in Chicago. (laughs) Okay. He took the name of Jimmy Lawrence and he found a job as a clerk. He thought that he could get lost in the shuffle of a big city. But what he didn't know is that Chicago was the epicenter of the federal dragnet trying to take him down. Oh, my God. Once the authorities found his car, which was all covered in blood on a side Mm -hmm. street, they knew he was in town. Yeah. On July 21st, the woman in red, Anna Campanas. Sure. There are a lot of accent marks I don't understand. (laughs) The madam of a brothel in Gary, Indiana, contacted the authorities and offered information about Dillinger's whereabouts in exchange for their help in preventing her deportation. Mm Mm-hmm. Her terms were agreed to, but she was later deported anyway. Oh, my God. That's what we do. Uh, Of course. Anna reported that Dillinger was seeing another sex worker, Polly Hamilton, and that she and the couple would be going to a movie the next day. She wasn't sure if they'd be going to the Biograph or the Marlboro, but she did say that she'd wear an orange dress so that she could be easily identified. Okay. Smart. The police were split into two groups, and each group staked out one of the theaters. Mm -hmm. At approximately 8.30 p.m., three members of the Dillinger gang went into the Biograph Theater, which was showing Manhattan melodrama starring Clark Gable. When the film ended, an agent stood by the front door and signaled that Dillinger was coming by lighting a cigar. Multiple agents later said that Dillinger looked right at him, glanced across the street, and reached into his pocket, but did not grab his gun. He uh-huh. ran to an alley. Three agents pursued and fired. Uh-oh. Dillinger was hit from behind four times. The fatal bullet entered through the back of his neck, severed his spinal cord, passed into his brain, and exited just under his right eye. Yikes. The exit wound can be seen on the death masks that were taken. Ugh. His body was put on display at Cook County Morgue, and it's estimated that 15,000 people came to see his body over a day and a half. He is buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the man who was credited with delivering the fatal shot to John Dillinger was given a letter of commendation. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, I guess murder's okay. So I skipped over a lot. (laughs) <laughs> like mm-hmm. there is so much so many more gun battles lots of girlfriends uh a case right. of gonorrhea oh, uh the nice. wife left him obviously yeah <laughs> um you know he got mixed up in the St. Paul crowd that we've talked about before right um you know got in with Babyface and apparently had ties to the Barker Carpus gang although the only thing I ever saw was that uh the one guy went there to die mm-hmm. um but what really got me, and you know, when you think of John Dillinger, well, first of all, what I always think of is that uh, I'd always heard that John Dillinger shot his way out of the Lexington, which was my grandpa's favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. Uh, oh. 
he like there was something with the Lex or something on that block, but it wasn't that, which is too bad because it's a cool story. You just like ruining all the legends, Diana. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know where I ever heard that, but it definitely isn't true. Like I couldn't even find a rumor. So I don't know if that's something like somebody told me there that or what, Mm -hmm. but what really got me when I was researching this is this all happened in like a year and a half. Yeah. It's funny how many of these things seem so big and then you like they go on forever and ever. And then you look at them and it's very short, just a couple weeks, couple years. No time has passed. And when you yeah. look at a lot of those mobster stories, you know, the the 30s, the rum runners and yeah. the, you know, the bank robbers and all that shit. Like mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde were only active for a couple of years. This guy was only active for a couple of years. Barker Carpus was only active for a couple of years. Right. You, know, you think of all of this activity, the gangster stuff is taking up all of the 30s, but it really didn't. Well, I mean, it's a high-risk lifestyle. I mean, I don't think you can really do those things for all that long. Right. Well, and the the feds were out to get them. You know, this is when J. Edgar Hoover was just rising into power. This is a little bit before the FBI, so it was still the Bureau of Investigations. They were kind of feeling out, like where their powers were and how much they could do and what their priorities were. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, at the beginning of the story, I called this a murder because it is, they murdered him. Yeah. And I don't want to say that I'm cool with crime for the most part, but he robbed banks at, mm-hmm. you know, there was a murder. There were other people that died in the commission of the crimes, although a lot of them were his gang members getting shot by the cops um so there was certainly bad shit going on but i don't think it's bad shit to the level of murdering him in an alley right playing devil's advocate though i mean he was very well armed he showed that he wasn't afraid of killing people like he didn't value human life i mean he went out and robbed a bank what a week after their buddy died no we gotta eat so i can see it being dangerous and you know for police to i guess escalate or make each other nervous or whatever but they also shot him in the back i don't know like i got no time for that no it's true i guess i just mean i can see it escalating but it didn't he saw them he ran into an alley they murdered him yeah. They didn't try to take him down. Nothing. Yeah. No, I, you're right. I, not okay. Maybe I'm just overtired of police brutality. Also very fair. <laughs> <sighs> so that is the extraordinarily abbreviated story of John Dillinger. That is a crazy amount of crime. So crazy. And there's so much more. There's so much more yeah. crazy. It, yeah. Oh, oh. So the other great part of the story is that I was doing the finishing touches here a little while ago up in my office and Liam came in. I had the Wikipedia article open Uh-oh. and he saw the, the mug shot. Like when you picture John Dillinger, that's the picture that mm-hmm. was up, right? Mm-hmm. And Liam said, who's that? And I said, that's John Dillinger. And he goes, oh, I know him. He's one of the guys that has his picture up at the Wabasha Street Caves. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he went there on a field trip a few weeks ago and remembered that. 
He's so your kid. And he didn't want to go on that field trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is where I sometimes wonder, like, how much of me is there in them? Yeah. him Because he's definitely down with the weird medical shit. We've been listening to a lot of that lately. But then he didn't want to go to this Wabasha Street Caves field trip. And I was like, oh, my God, they're amazing. You should definitely go. And he'd mm-hmm. been there before, which I didn't remember. And he's like, well, they're creepy. And I'm like, damn, right, they're creepy. Do you know what's happened down there? Right. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome and historic and creepy and horrible. And right. Yeah, he liked it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, he's very much your kid. But I think it, like, he's getting to the point where he's like, oh, it's not just my mom that knows this. Right. You're not just like, the only freak. This is a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah, that's funny. So, Diana, I'm almost afraid to ask if you have any advice or call to action after this story other than, like, don't go to prison and learn how to be a better criminal because it's still not going to end well for you. I'm going to say this as another, you know, progeny of a grocer. Okay. I don't care what your daddy tells you. Uh Call a lawyer. Yes. Always call it, especially if you're innocent. Yeah. I mean, my dad's a grocer, and I'm pretty sure if I ended up in jail, first of all, he'd be super mad. Right. (laughs) Super mad. Um, And then second, like the first thing he would do is probably call a lawyer for me. (laughs) Yes. No, that's good advice. So Yeah. Call a lawyer. If you can't afford one, the state will appoint you one. Go ahead and take advantage of that. Right. Whether you are guilty or innocent, like call a lawyer, talk to someone. Especially if you aren't guilty. Right. Right. Well, and when we were at the True Crime Podcast Festival, we went to that, um, was it Women in Podcasting um, panel? Panel's the word I want. They, there was one girl there, I think from Fatalities, and she talked about how she could make anyone in the audience confess yeah. to anything, even if they didn't do it, just using like psychological tricks. And so call, have someone there with you. Yep. I almost wanted to, like, there was limited time and we were talking about other things, but I almost wanted to be like, I volunteer as tribute. Right? <laughs> no, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Pick something awful. Get me to confess. Right. I feel like it wouldn't take a whole lot for me to confess. I just. I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It would be really fascinating to see all of the tricks, though. Right. And I always think, you know, because you see, I don't know if you watched Making a Murderer, but. A little bit. I watched some of it. Yeah. There was that whole time where they were getting Brendan Dassey to confess. And he just wanted to go back to school. Like, right. He had no idea what's going on. Totally innocent of everything. Right. And, you know, I watched that and I'm like, all right, that's a kid that has some, some pretty severe, like, learning limitations. Right. And is lower on the IQ scale than some right. other folks. And has not had a robust upbringing. Right. I could see where somebody like that's pretty easy to break, but I feel like I wouldn't be. And to be shown how it's done, I think it would be fascinating. Yeah. See, and I definitely would be because I'm such a people pleaser. Like I would say whatever they asked me to. I, if you get the right person. Yeah. I, I yeah. bet any of us would be. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And especially, I mean, it's one thing for a nice lady we know that does a podcast right. to try to do it. But if, you know, if I were in an interrogation room 
with the police, with the current, like, state of affairs as they're going in and our, you know, current situation, worried about what happens to my kid if I don't go home that night. Right. What I'd confess to. Right. Just anything to let me go home and make sure he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and especially as I don't want to play the single parent card here, but as a single parent, (laughs) I don't have a lot of time to figure it out. No. Yeah. You know, I don't have another parent I can call and be like, you take care of the kid. I'll take care of staying out of jail. (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, once I'm in jail, do they come take my kid? Does he get in the system? Like, there's so many things. Absolutely. Yeah. If you tell me that I can get out of here and have a light felony and a fine, fuck yeah, let's do this. Right. Exactly. I mean, I'll, I'll come get your kid, Diana. We won't let him go. Well, I should give you my mom's number for bail money. Right. <laughs> but again, I don't know if you hanging on to the kid, like, is that valid? Mm-hmm. If they want to take me down for something and I've confessed to something horrible. Yeah. No. Like, I have family. I have you. I have other friends that would take him. They just right. toss him in the system anyway. Well, I mean, and the police might use that as leverage, but there are limits to that too, right? Because like social services doesn't just want a ton of kids. Like if there's somebody who can take him, they're not going to take on another burden. Yeah. They have enough going on already. So I think it would, it would be okay. Can I make suggestions as to where I would like him to be? (laughs) Right. Go with these people. Don't go with these people. Right. Please avoid. (laughs) Right. Not these guys. Call a lawyer. Call a lawyer. And then call your people. Yes, call your people. Make sure they're not in prison. Call them to let them know you're not in prison. Just check in. Say hey. Yeah. yeah. It's been real hot. Yeah. Make sure they're not super hot. Right. Well, I mean, we've covered murders where people murdered people because it was hot. So call your people. Oh, my God. I Like... I could see where they're coming from. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sometimes you're. Yeah. Just so hot. I'm going to kill someone. Oh, man. Sometimes when it's that hot, just there's nothing that's going to help. No. So call your people. Make sure they're call not feeling people. stabby because it's hot. If they right. are feeling stabby, bring them a lemonade or something. And a lawyer. Call them a lawyer. And don't end up on next week's episode. <laughs>